All right, everybody. Well, hey, you can start making your way back to your seat. My fa yeah, you got some good, co good costumes? What? The Hulk. Oh, guys, this week we rented Avengers for, from the library, like a little kid Avengers. I've been teaching Jack how to do the Hulk and Iron Man. So I'm like, Jack, do Iron Man. He's like, I'm like, do Hulk. It's awesome. Having a kid is so fun. So we're going to dress him up as a UNI football player on Saturday night. Isla is going to be a UNI cheerleader. I'm going to wear a referee jersey, and Natalie's going to be a UNI fan. So go Cats forever. We love UNI. If you want to see the cutest little UNI family running around getting candy, creep on us on Virgil Street Saturday night. I think, Tim, what time does trick-or-treat start usually here? Five? Five-ish? I don't know. Okay. We'll find out. But Virgil Street is where we'll be at, and you'll see just the UNI Panthers running around. It will be great. If you got a Bible, go ahead and start making your way to the book of Isaiah. It's pretty close to the center of your Bible. If you hit Psalms, flip a few pages to the right, and you'll come across Isaiah. And let me ask you this question. What is the greatest objection that you have to Christianity? Like of all the things, all the concepts, all the things that, are, that Christianity teaches are true, what, what is the thing that you have had the hardest time wrestling with? What's your biggest objection to the Christian faith? So far in our series, we have hit one of the most common objections to Christianity, which is the problem of suffering. How could God allow suffering in this world? Tonight, we are going to hit another common objection to Christianity, which is the wrath of God. How could God be a good God who is wrathful, a God of judgment? And to be fully transparent right from the get-go of all of the concepts of Christianity, of all the objections to Christianity, this one for me has been personally the most challenging one for me to grasp. It's been the one that I've had to wrestle through the most as a Christian. This concept that there's a God, that he created humans, and humans who reject him will spend eternity separated from him in hell. That concept, by far, out of any other objection to Christianity, for me personally, has been the most difficult one to wrestle through. So tonight, I hope to show you some of the steps that I've gone through to, to kind of think through this concept of God's wrath, God's judgment, that we're going to see in Isaiah. So, so far in Isaiah, we've been seeking to understand a more, and get a more accurate view of who God is. So we've talked about his holiness his nearness, his heart for the nations and all people. We've talked about the love of the Father at our fall retreat. We've talked about how he's fulfilling unlike idols and that we should worship him alone. And then tonight we're gonna come to the middle section of the book of Isaiah and see Isaiah describe God's judgment and wrath. So Isaiah 13 is the chapter we're gonna be in. And like I said, this has been the most difficult concept for me to walk through. So here are kind of the four steps that I've gone through personally as I've thought through God's judgment and his wrath. The four steps that I want to kind of share with you and that will kind of guide our evening tonight is, first, I wanna show you how the Bible describes God's judgment. The way that the Bible talks about God's wrath, his righteous judgment, what does that look like? Spoiler, it's probably worse than what you usually think of. It really is. It probably is going to be more overwhelming than you usually typically think about God's wrath. Second, I want to show you that it is impossible for you to deny your desire for God to be a God of judgment. 
that it is actually impossible that in your guts you desire for God to be a God of judgment. So that's what I want to do secondly. Third, I want to show you then the predicament that leaves us in. That we're overwhelmed by this idea that God is wrathful, but in our guts we desire that he is a God of judgment and would hold people accountable for their sin. That leaves us in a predicament. And then fourth, I want to show you the solution that God provides. The solution to how he can both judge the sin of the world, but also extend grace to sinners. So that's what we're going to do. This common objection to Christianity, the one that personally has been the most difficult for me to wrestle through. That's what we're going to do. First, see God's wrath. Second, show you that it's impossible for you to deny your desire for God to be a God of judgment. Third, show you the predicament that we're in. And then fourth, God's solution. And at the end of the night, here's what I want each one of us to walk away with. I want each one of us to walk away with a new understanding that God's judgment is actually an expression of his love. That as difficult as it is to wrap our minds about, around God being a God of judgment, it is actually out of the overflow of his love that he is a God of judgment. That he gives us rules and holds us accountable to them out of his love. And that actually when we begin to see that, it leads us to worship and it begins to change everything about our lives, right? That's the thing we've been saying all this throughout this whole series, that the more accurately we can see God, the more our lives will come in line with his purpose for us and the more we'll have the ability to glorify him. That when we see God accurately, it impacts all of our life. So let's work through this kind of journey, this pathway of understanding this concept of God's wrath Two passages in Isaiah that we're going to look at this. Isaiah 13 is where we're going to start. So how does this prophet Isaiah talk about God's wrath? So Isaiah 13 is the first passage. So Isaiah 13 through 35 is kind of, there's passages on God's wrath outside of these chapters, but this middle section of the book of Isaiah 13 through 35 contains a lot of passages of God's judgment, of his wrath. And so it starts out with, this judgment against Babylon, this ancient civilization that came to power in about uh, 611 BC and was in power to about 539 BC. This is God's judgment or pronouncement against them. So I'm gonna actually read the entire chapter, the entire chapter, and there are some uncomfortable portions of, of this chapter. So here's Isaiah 13. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. A pronouncement concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Lift up a banner on a barren mountain. Call out to them. Signal with your hand and they will go. Through the gates of the nobles, I have commanded my consecrated ones. Yes, I have called my warriors who celebrate my triumph to execute my wrath. Listen, a commotion on the mountains like that of a mighty people. Listen, an uproar from the kingdoms like nations being gathered together. The Lord of armies is mobilizing an army for war. They are coming from a distant land, from the farthest horizon, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the, Lord, the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak. Every man will lose heart. They will be horrified pain and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with rage and burning anger, 
to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked people for their iniquities. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of tyrants. I will make a human more scarce than fine gold and mankind more rare than the gold of offer. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its foundations at the wrath of the Lord of armies on the day of his burning anger. Like wandering gazelles and like sheep without a shepherd, each one will turn to his own people. Each one will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be stabbed and whoever is caught will die by the sword. Their children will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted, their wives raped. Look, I am stirring up the Medes against them who cannot be bought off with silver and who have no desire for gold. Their bows will cut young men to pieces. They will have no compassion on offspring. They will not look with pity on children. In Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the pride of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. A nomad will not pitch his tent there and shepherds will not let their flocks rest there, but desert creatures will lie down there and owls will fill the houses. Ostriches will dwell there and wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in the fortresses and jackals in the luxurious palaces. Babylon's time is almost up. Her days are almost over. All right, let that description set in. It's a sobering description of the wrath of God. God speaking through Isaiah looks at Babylon and condemns it. This nation marked by pride and arrogance and wickedness and evil. He says, your time is almost up. He says he's gonna summon the Medes, this Persian empire to come and overthrow them, which they did in 539 BC. And here's some of the descriptions of God's judgment against Babylon, right? Look back at Isaiah, 15, Isaiah 13. In verse three, he says, I've called my warriors. These are my warriors to execute my wrath. Verse five, they're coming from a distant lands with the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. And then he says, wail, verse six, for the day of the Lord is near. This symbolic day of the Lord, this day of reckoning and judgment. Verse eight, he says, they'll be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them. He says, look, the day of the Lord's coming, cruel and fury, bur- f- uh, fury and burning and anger to make the earth a desolation. In verse 15, it, it says, whoever's found will be stabbed. Whoever's caught will die by the sword. Verse 16, their children will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their wives raped. Look, I'm stirring up the meads against them. He says, this will will be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, the city will never be inhabited. It'll just be this desolation when my judgment is executed. These are sobering descriptions. Descriptions of God's wrath against an evil nation. People who have rejected him. 
And as we read these, there's just kind of this like visceral reaction of just like, how? How could God not only allow this, but be the one ordaining it? How could this be what he is doing? How could we have a God like this? And some of you are thinking, man, if that's the God of Christianity, I want nothing to do with him. But here's the reality. Isaiah doesn't just describe the nation, the judgment that's coming against Babylon. As you continue to go, he makes a pronouncement against Moab. He makes a pronouncement against Damascus, against Cush, against Israel, against Jerusalem, against Egypt. At one point, he has Isaiah walk around naked for three years to symbolize these nations going into captivity and slavery as, as na- going into captivity naked. He has judgments against Duma, against Arabia, and then you get to chapter 24 and he makes a judgment against the entire earth and all of humanity. And as you go through chapter 24, you look, you see things like the Lord is stripping the earth bare. You see things like the earth mourns and withers, the world wastes away. You see things like the joyful tambourines have ceased and the noise of the jubilant has stopped. You see God describing the earth as this, this city, this, this humanity, it lives in this worldwide city and he calls it a city of chaos in verse 10. And then Isaiah cries out in verse 16, I waste away, I waste away. Panic, pit and trap await you who dwell on the earth. Isaiah 24 begins to describe the judgment that isn't just for the nations, but also for the entire world. They're sobering descriptions of God's judgment against wickedness and against sin. Depictions that leave us wondering, how could we have a God like this? As God is a God of wrath and judgment, he hates wickedness, he hates evil, he hates sin. And this is seen throughout the whole Bible. In the opening pages of your Bible, one of the most famous accounts of God's justice and God's wrath is seen in the flood. That God, looking across the world, seeing how humanity had rejected him and were destroying his creation, decided to bring a flood that would drown all of humanity except for one family. Isaiah 13 mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. A few pages after the flood, there's a story, a horrible story of two angels going to the town of Sodom and staying with a man named Lot. And as the men of the town come, they ask Lot to hand the angels over so that they can molest them sexually and rape them. And wicked and vile Lot says, don't take my visitors, take my virgin daughters and rape them instead. And because of the vile, wicked and evilness of the men in that city, God rains down sulfur and fire and completely destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And sometimes you'll hear, well, God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but a God of love in the New Testament. But there are passages all over the New Testament that describe the judgment of God that is coming against evil and wicked. Here's a handful of them. I'll read them. You don't necessarily have to go there, but Jesus, in his most famous sermon, Jesus himself said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that one lose one of the body parts from your body than the whole body go to hell. Jesus says in Luke 13 too, unless you repent, you will perish. Later in that chapter, he describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then he says in 2.5, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. The Apostle Peter talking to a group of people who they, that have people around them denying that God is a God of judgment, denying that God is a God of wrath, he says this to them in 2 Peter 3. They, these people that deny God's judgment, they deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water, water and through water. Through these, the world at that time perished when it was flooded, talking about the flood in the Old Testament. Verse seven, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Peter is saying, look, there was once a flood of water. God promised to never destroy the world that way. But instead, now he is storing up a flood of fire against unrighteousness and wickedness. The Apostle John describes Jesus as the one who is on a white horse in Revelation 19 coming. And he says he judges the world with, with justice. And his eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowds were on his head. His robe was dipped in blood. The armies that were in heaven followed him on a white horse. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it and rule them with an iron rod. And ultimately, Revelations ends with this scene called the great white throne. And in Revelation 20, it says this, then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I saw also the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened. It goes on, it says they were judged according to the works that were written in the book. And then ultimately it says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is how the, the Bible describes the judgment of God against sin. And it's not just judgment that happened in the Old Testament, but it's judgment that is coming in the end against wickedness and sin and evil. And we might think, man, that might just be like saved for people who've done really, really bad things. But Paul says in Romans 23 that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he says in Romans 5, 12, that just as sin entered the world through one man and death likewise, so death has entered the, all, the world for all of us. And that death has spread to all people because all have sinned. Here's the reality. We have all sinned. We have all rejected the relationship that we were designed to have with the creator. And we all, because of our sin, are under condemnation, guilt, and the wrath of God. And this is what Isaiah and the Bible presents to us as part of the character and person of God the Father. Now, you might be thinking, man, like, how do I, like, resolve the tensions I'm beginning to feel in my heart? Like, we've talked about the love of the Father at the fall retreat. We've talked about God's holiness and his nearness. We talked about how we should worship him and not idols. 
and this doesn't sound loving at all. How could this be loving? To create humans, and then when they reject you, you condemn them to eternal destruction. How could I ever worship a God like that? I don't even care if he exists or not. Even if he did exist, I'm not worshiping a God like that. A God who would create people, and then when they mess up, he condemns them to eternal destruction. How could I worship God if that's who he is? Here's the problem. Even as you hear those, what I want to show you is that it is actually impossible for you to deny your desire to, for God to judge wickedness. Even if you hate and want to kick against a God of judgment, it is actually in your guts impossible for you not to desire a God of judgment. Here's what I mean. Natalie and I, over COVID, watched some documentaries on World War II, and it was fascinating. It was really fun. It was enjoyable. Uh, but one of the last episodes of this documentary highlighted the Holocaust during World War II. And it was overwhelming as we were seeing footage and pictures and, and hearing these accounts that six million Jews died during the Holocaust. I came across a picture of 110,000 pairs of shoes at Auschwitz next to a gas chamber. I was reading about the, the human experiments that the Nazis would do. And at one point, they took an 11-year-old boy behind some barracks. They strapped him to a chair. They tied him down. And then they saw how long it would take for a hammer hitting his head to cause him to become retarded and insane. They would pull infants away from their mothers and see how long they could go without nursing. Even more recently are the Darfur genocide accounts in Sudan. Here's how one article describes what happened in Darfur. The actions of the John Weed have been described as genocidal rape, not, with not just women, but with children as well. There were also reports of infants being bludgeoned to death and sexually mutilation of victims being commonplace. The Janaweed forces surrounded the village and then attacked girls and women who left the village to gather firewood or water. The Janaweed forces either went house to house, killing the boys and the men while raping the girls and the women, or rounded up everyone, bringing them to a central location where the forces then killed the boys and the men and raped the girls and women. According to Tara Greengrich and Jennifer Leaning, the rape attacks were often carried out in front of others including husbands, fathers, mothers, and children of the victims who were forced to watch and were prevented from intervening. This genocidal rape has been committed upon a wide range that includes women of 70 years of or older and girls under 10 and visibly pregnant women. That's wicked. It's overwhelming. I can't even hardly read it. To think about taking a dad and making him watch his daughter be raped. There's not a skeptic in the world who could witness that and then say that you are culturally conditioned to think that that's wrong. In your guts, you want those men judged. 
In your guts, you want those Nazis to be held accountable for what they did. It is impossible for you to deny your desire for God to judge the wicked. We all cry out for justice. We all know that's wicked. One individual who experienced the atrocities of war said, leave it up to people who live in suburbs to say that God is not a God of judgment and that a God of judgment would be unloving. Here's our predicament. We hate that God is wrathful, but we also hate the atrocities of wickedness. We hate two things, right? We hate the wrath of God and we also hate the wickedness of man. That's our predicament, we hate both. And we can either have human atrocities and wickedness judged, but then we get a God who is wrathful and we are condemned. Or we can have a God who's passive, but we have no hope for justice in this world. How many of us have cried justice this summer, but then hate the idea of the wrath of God? If you were to go to one of those families in Darfur and ask them, what is the greatest way God could express his love to you? They won't hesitate. They'd say, give me justice. Judge the Janaweed men. We might be uncomfortable with Isaiah 13, but the Darfur people would be comforted by Isaiah 13. To know a God, to know that there's a God who sees the injustices and crimes committed against them and will hold those people to account. So what do we do? In our guts, we desire justice, but we too are people filled with wickedness. If we get a God who judges then we are also judged because of the wickedness in our lives. If we get a God who's passive, we're dismayed and left with no hope. What do we do? What is the solution? How can God be both the judge who judges the wickedness of sin, but also extend grace to sinners? Well, as you go through Isaiah, you begin to hear of someone who's coming. Someone that God promised would come, and he's known as the suffering servant. And there's four songs of the suffering servant. And it culminates in Isaiah 53. And what we're going to see is that this suffering servant came and took on the wrath of God so that we instead could receive the grace of God. How can God both judge sin and extend grace to us? It's if the suffering servant would come and be judged by God's wrath for sin so that all that was left for us was grace. So look at Isaiah 53. Again, I'm gonna read the whole chapter. It says, who has believed what we've heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. 
He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had spoken not deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. He'll receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, and was taken to the cross. He was falsely accused, beaten, stripped down, whipped relentlessly, his back torn to shreds, blood running down, forced to carry a cross that he couldn't even get up. Calvary had to get a bystander to help him. He was nailed hand and foot to a cross, was lifted up in the heat of the day. And beyond all of that, the wrath of God was being poured out on him for every sin that had ever been committed or ever would be committed. How could God's wrath not crush you? How could God's wrath not crush the world? It's because it crushed him on the cross. Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross. He was crushed by the Father who he had eternally dwelt with so that all that was left for us was grace and love and mercy. And now when we consider the end and the judgment that is to come, and the fire that is being stored up to the heavens, it doesn't terrify us because Jesus took it all. God's wrath was fully satisfied in Jesus' death on the cross, and Jesus rose again three days later, completely earning our justification, our salvation, our forgiveness of sins. God in that moment was both just and gracious. He was both the judge of sin and the gracious and loving father that we are so desperate to have. And he did it by crushing his own son for you. When we begin to see God in this way, it will impact every aspect of our life. Think about this for a minute. We've talked about a lot tonight let me ask you this. Do you really believe that God is a God of judgment? Do you really believe that God hates wickedness and evil? Like, honestly, think about that. Like, it's like, man, do I actually believe this? Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, 
Do I actually believe this? That there is eternal judgment coming for those who are not in Christ. But all of God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus. And if you put your faith in Jesus, the wrath will be removed from you and put on the propitiation of our sins. A propitiation is a wrath-removing sacrifice. Do I actually believe that? Because if you do, it will change everything about your life. Guys, I hope that you have friends in Salt Company, but Salt Company is not just a social gathering. There's probably a lot more fun things you can do on Thursday night. In all honesty, there are. Instead of coming here and hearing me talk about Halloween costumes for my kids and the wrath of God, like there's probably more fun things that you could have done. This is not just a social gathering, but I hope you have great friendships. This is a group of people who are convinced that there's a God, convinced that we have rejected him, but convinced that out of his great love for us, he came and died on the cross for our sins so that we could have the hope of eternal life and not eternal perishing. And if you believe that, it will change everything about your life. It will change what's most important to you. It will change how you spend your time. It will change what you think about. It will change what you talk about. Let's pray. God, it is a sobering thing to read passages like Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 24, to think about the flood, to think about Sodom and Gomorrah, to think about the judgment that's to come in the end. It's a, it's a sobering thing. But God, it's a thing that causes us worship when we see that your wrath was ultimately poured out on Christ for our sin. God, that Jesus was crushed in our place so that all that was left for us is grace. God, we thank you that you're a God of justice. God, I thank you that you're a God of judgment, a God who holds people account for wickedness and evil. It would be evil of you not to hold people account. It'd be evil of you to be indifferent towards the injustices that we see in places like Darfur. God, help us to see your love, that ultimately your judgment is an expression of your love. And God, that we would see it poured out on Jesus and respond in faith and that everything in our life would be transformed. God, we love you. Amen.